You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Oh, is that too close? <laughs> um, thanks for coming to our first event of the Black Architecture series, Women's Business. Uh, so tonight we'll be talking uh, with some lovely Indigenous women working in the built environment uh, across multiple different sectors from and also different stages of their career. Um, this event has been kindly sponsored by Monash, so thank you. Um, and also endorsed by Parler, so thank you. Um, we're going to kick off with a couple of questions. So the format is a yarning circle. So I'll throw some questions out to these ladies and they can respond in whatever way they like, in whatever order they like. Um, and I guess my first question to you guys is who are you, where are you from and what do you do? I'll start. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Carol Gosem. I'm from the University of Queensland and I'm a jittable person. I'm uh, from... Uh, near Cairns, but not Jittable Cairns country is not part of Jittable country. It's the Atherton Tablelands uh, near Cairns, and including Tully and Murray Upper. And so I'm a gumble butter person, and that means a rocky place person. So um, yes, yeah, so I'm from so I'm from a rocky place. <laughs> Oh, yes, and I'm an academic at uh, the University of Queensland. I'm in the Aboriginal Environments Research Centre and I work as a researcher and I, I'm also uh, do some teaching as well, uh, Aboriginal architecture. Oh, hel Ooh, hello. Everyone feels like they're behind me. Hi. <laughs> I'm Danielle Hromek. Um, I'm a Butterwung woman of the UN Nation and the UN Nation is... Um, on the south coast of New South Wales, so it's a long skinny country that runs along the coastal area. Uh, so my, I have a few jobs that I do. Um, mainly I'm writing a PhD and uh, that's, I'm in my final six months, so that's the scary time. And I'm writing about how, how have Aboriginal people always known and loved and dreamt and sensed and narrated our spaces and um, how have our spaces been traumatised by colonisation and how can we reclaim them? And so I also work uh, a couple of days a week at the New South Wales Government Architects Office and I'm working on a project called the Sydney Ochre Grid, which is a project to map um, Aboriginal places in Sydney and hopefully uh, inevitably across New South Wales. Um, really important project for architecture and designers and planners, I think, um, because it gives us a chance to respond to our, our places. Um, what else do I do? I do other small research projects for other people like City of Sydney and I run a company with my siblings called Babana Durham in Design, which is um, my, my siblings and all somehow, my siblings and I all somehow ended up in design um, fields and architecture and so we just recently started doing that together. Hi, um, my name is Laura Brown. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Melbourne. I'm studying a Bachelor of Construction and Architecture. Um, I'm currently working in construction. Um, I don't really know what else to say. I'm a um, Marawari and Kamilaro woman from uh, the Lightning Ridge area, Mori, uh, Gundawindi kind of location. Um, so middle of the border between Queensland and New South Wales, and yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, my name's Francois Lane. Um, I'm from Cairns. Uh, my 
people uh, from um, Mer or Murray Island in the Torres Strait. Um, I also have connection to the Kaurag people, which is the Aboriginal people of the Torres Strait. Um, I run a practice with my husband, Andrew Lane, called Indige Design, um, and that is an architectural and interior design practice, um, a small business. Uh, and even though my, I am an interior designer, um, I'm slowly merging more into doing artwork and in particular surface pattern art um, and some of the clothes I have on are my designs. Um, yeah. Walking billboard. <laughs> um, thank you, ladies. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on today, the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, um, and specifically acknowledge the Yalakut Willem, as this is their land on, along the Birurung, which is the river. So we're on Birurungar, which is river country. Um, I'd like to acknowledge their ancestors, past, present and future, and um, thank them for allowing us to be here today. Uh, so my first question to you guys is, what drives you? <laughs> was that planned? <laughs> um, so much drives me. Um, I'm, if, if I answer that question in relation to the surface pattern art, um, I just see so much beauty from the country that my family have lived on for so many generations. And, um, and the continuing stories um, that, that just goes on with people interacting with each other and with their land, and that compels me to express it. Um, and so I express that um, in, my, in my textiles, so they all have a meaning behind it, um, a story behind it, and some are more special than others because of, because of the, the, the inspiration that came with it. Mm. Um, I guess I'm still quite new, um, but I think what has you know, dri driven me to get into the design and um, built environment has um, been seeing the, I guess, lack of development in rural communities and um, wanting to help um, the people living in them to gain access and just have a better overall lifestyle and, um, yeah, access to, you know, better education and health necessities and stuff like that. So um, I think a good way for me to help that is going through, you know, architecture and construction and how design can help implement these things in these communities? Um, when I, I did my undergrad as a, I had this term, but mature age student, it's, I think we learn for our whole lives, so to call myself mature age is revolting, but in <laughs> academics, <laughs> as in academic sense is, um, you know, what compared to everyone else there, I was sort of their mother's ages, I think. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I finished, um, somebody said, oh, what are you going to do now? And I was like, I don't know. And at the same time, I was spending quite a lot of time with my grandmother and I'm a spatial designer, which I forgot to mention. That's sort of my um, discipline. And uh, quite interested in how we perform in spaces and experience space. And um, 
we were walking down the street in Glebe in Sydney and she said, oh, I just feel like I'm invisible in public space. And I said, I just was like, but how? You're so bubbly and cute and, you know, talk to everybody. How can you be invisible? And it was a question that sat with me for a long time about how could my gorgeous grandmother be invisible in public spaces? And it's sort of the trigger for why I started my PhD was how, how is it that we experience our spaces and, and why do some of us feel invisible in, especially in me metropolitan and urban spaces? So that's sort of the undercurrent of why I started and finishing it is the driving, you know, the driving force is to finish that, is to keep, rem try and do it while my grandmother's still here and can still understand what answer I come up with, whatever that is. Well, I kind of have an idea now. Um, that's an interesting question, what drives me, because when, you, when I think about when I went to university many, many moons ago, um, as a mature age student, <laughs> um, I started off with wanting to have a solution for Aboriginal housing, which is a very noble, <laughs> noble idea, which uh, never really came to uh, full resolution. And, um, and once, so that's how I entered into architecture and I started from this very um, low-grade idea of what architecture was and so now I find that I'm writing about architecture and I'm writing about uh, Indigenous uh, themes in architecture and indigeneity and, um, but when I started there was next to no Indigenous architecture outside of the welfare space or outside of um, housing. So in that time it's been very, very interesting. So uh, when I started as a student there, was not a, there wasn't a single building that was prominently known even though that there were Indigenous buildings, um, particularly in remoter areas of Australia. Um, and so now I have a choice of several hundred buildings across all spectrums um, and, and there's incredibly uh, interesting uh, approaches in terms of uh, symbolic reconciliation, reparation, memorialisation. So uh, I think there's been a maturing of, you know, Indigenous architecture. Uh, uh, but yet, when I say that, um, it hasn't re reached its pinnacle. I think it's that we're, we're really at the beginning of Australia readdressing, um, you know, acknowledgement of Indigenous people and acknowledgement of um, different and diverse ways in which we can express uh, Indigenous identity. Um, and in some ways in, uh, address not just identity but other aspects of Indigenous culture um, in architecture. Thank you. Um, as Indigenous women, what responsibilities do you hold in your field? Um, <laughs> now, because I've got the mic, I've got answers. <laughs> we're all <laughs> when we were posed with this question, I really, you know, I think I I did have a think about this beforehand, um, but not in the the context of that question because I thought. I, do I really approach this as an, in a gendered way? Because there's some aspects of your work that are really definitely very gendered, you know, because uh, if you've worked in, in uh, rural or remote parts of Australia, um, the gender issues are much more apparent. Um, and also in urban space, in sometimes in, in urban contexts, because, you know, there are 
Um, it made me think about Brisbane. There are sisters inside. There's, you know, men's groups. There's a whole range of uh, things that are really highly gendered spaces um, for different reasons. And um, But sometimes I'm not confronted with the idea of my uh, gender as an Indigenous woman uh, in, in certain contexts. And I don't... Um, I guess I think I've felt that more apparently when I've been thrust into a really highly gendered context and knowing the Indigenous protocols in terms of women not speaking uh, directly to men, uh, that, you know, having to have um, go in, in certain consultation processes, having both male and female, the women talking with the women and, and so forth. And I think, I, I think that's where it becomes really hyper, um, a real and apparent to me. Um, yeah, I was, there's so many ways I could actually answer this and I was thinking about it in terms of my, the teaching that I do and, and the research and, you know, I, I think I've got to... I guess I feel like we live in a colonised space, but women also live in a patronised space, you know, where it's... Where everything we've, that we've been designed, that's been designed around us is largely designed by rich white men, putting it, you know, generally. And if that's the case, what does it look like if it wasn't designed by rich white men who aren't from here? You know, what if it was designed by somebody who was female from here? And I don't have the answer to that, to be honest. I just am posing those questions to myself and to students at the moment because we all live, like all females, live in patronised space. So what does that mean for us? I think it's changed the way we move our bodies. It's changed the way we walk and move around the city if there was, you know. So I, ha I also have responsibility directly to my family to, um, that my, I know my brother doesn't have and that's, that's just different and I, it's not, um, I don't begr begrudge that but it is different. I come from a matricentric family, it always has been as far as we can see and our stories have always said that the women were the ones who made decisions and it still is. And that's part of my responsibility. I'm the oldest in, out of a whole group of cousins as well. So I, I have that too. But I'm kind of one who likes to sit in the background. And so I'm having to force myself to push myself forward quite a lot. Whereas my brother naturally stands up and I'm... Yeah. So I don't really know if I answered that actually. But there's some responsibilities that I have that I know that I can't really describe sometimes as well. Yeah, um, so I guess the, some of the responsibilities that I face within university and working are being one of the two only Indigenous and women students in my year level, which is quite difficult, um, and only having really one Indigenous tutor in my three years at university. So there's not a lot of, um, I don't know, access to help and, you know, just to have a chat about, you know, work life and university and how to deal with, you know, some things that we are facing that maybe some other students aren't. Um, also, my responsibilities within work, I'm the only Indigenous and only Indigenous women working in my um, work, so that's quite difficult as well. Um, and, you know, helping them to create a reconciliation action plan and um, 
just trying to, you know, figure out how we can move that company further and, um, yeah, bringing more Indigenous students into that area and teaching them that there is a place for them. Um, so I guess creating a pathway that Indigenous students and women can follow, I guess, and helping them in that process. Um, I've got a few uh, students that are below me and there's a, f a lot more entering into the, uh, I guess, architecture and construction and design areas within Melbourne Uni. So I'm just trying to help them and give them a, a space that they can feel comfortable within. So, yeah. I'll answer this in regards to a, a project that I'm working on at the moment. Um, I was... Um, my role it was initially to do a cultural design review for AFL Girls House up in Cairns. Um, and when I met with the architects and the builders, it was a design and construct um, procurement. Um, I was sitting at a table with a whole bunch of buffy men and um, I ended up saying to them at, at a point during the conversation, I'm sorry guys, but none of you are Indigenous and none of you are a woman, so you really need me on this job to enlighten you. <laughs> um, so they, they took that fairly well because um, um, I said it so nicely. Um, <laughs> but just working on, on that project, um, um, it's been a, a case of educating the the architects and the builders about the sensitivities of women and how they interact with spaces um, and also the cultural um, factors, the beliefs that influence how um, a woman can feel comfortable. So as an example, the, um, the design of a shared bedroom um, a common belief is that um, spirits can be seen in reflections of, of the mirror or on any surface that gives a reflection. So just advising on where to locate mirrors on cabinetry was important because if someone's lying in bed and they roll over to have their cupboard with a mirror on the front of it, it's not, you know, they might not feel comfortable sleeping in that bed, let alone coming from a community um, that is so different to the built environment, to the accommodation that they find themselves in. And when they combine that with um, schooling and the size of the school being so different, being one of the few uh, community kids um, at the school, it's just another contributing factor that can determine whether they'll be successful um, seeking education in Cairns or not. Um, so there's lots of little beliefs that really, as designers, simple things to change, but it's about education and having the patience to work with the buffy blokes who think, you know, they have a good idea of what's required. Um, the other role I had in that project was incorporating artworks and I work closely with their operations manager who has a lot of experience in boarding school 
um, through Western Australia and especially up in Broome. And we have this women's theme going through the selection of artworks. Um, the entry wall is like, has this big, would have been, could have been a concrete block, just rendered and coloured wall, but we've turned it into a, um, just using metal screens, we're making it a wall of really large sized dilly bags of all different shapes and sizes. And we just continue this story of weaving, um, of women hunting, um, and we've, we're looking at how we can apply artwork um, um, to, the, to the built environment. Mm. How do you all feel that your design process or the processes that you employ for the work that you do, either studying or research or writing or design, um, how do you think they're different or they differ from what you've been taught or how you've been trained? I've been thinking about this question a lot because it's part of what I'm trying to talk about in my PhD is um, how do we design better? Not just better for Aboriginal people but just better. Um, and one of the things that I've started to look at is how is designing with country first. So country is the first thing that you consider in the design process and that changes everything around when you start with country first because you start I mean, people and community are all part of country, but if you start with that point, um, then you're, you're thinking through a whole different series of questions and thought processes. And I haven't quite got it, nailed it yet, but um, that's very different from what I was taught to design, where you're not even considering country most of the time. At least when I went through university, I wasn't. That wasn't even a question. So that's the main. That's the main starting point that I have. But I also, of course, there's um, ways and methods of doing it. You know, protocols and principles which are never were never spoken about, and those are really important for our communities, um, and even us as as practitioners, I think, or researchers, because if we don't do it right, then um, everyone who's impact is impacted by that project, and us as well. Um, I wanted to approach that uh, question a bit differently because um, I think some of the things that I've thought about uh, that I definitely do uh, differently because I'm aware of, I guess, the cultural implications and the cultural protocols it's about what you write about and, and how you write about it. So not everything is open for discussion. So that's, that's one thing, respecting um, Indigenous viewpoints and what Indigenous people view as private and, and, and what you should write down <laughs> and what you shouldn't. Um, I think that's definitely different because I think in research in general, um, you know, aside from ethics, um, ethics considerations often doesn't do not think about the cultural implications or the cultural mores or the cultural values uh, that Indigenous people have. Um, so I'm very conscious about what you do write about and what you don't write about. Uh, the other thing I thought too is that I think the thing that I find, um, I guess from my cultural background, because I grew up in a community 
my identity wasn't as an individual, it was a group identity. So I think that's the biggest um, transfer or that it, you know, to shift from an individual focus, looking at very, um, so your writing is, is about career advancement and, and so forth. And I don't want to idealise this, but I think when you do grow up in that context, um, the, co the, the sense of individual attainment is, is very lessened. And so when I went to university, I found that my objectives were really a reflection of my cultural background, wanting to solve an issue which I thought collectively Indigenous people were facing, and really a sense of wanting to give back to the community. And I think that perhaps was um, a starting point, and I find that there's a tension between that at different times, you know, between the things that I write and... Uh, and particularly when I'm doing things that in involve my um, family or community, um, if you're, you know, designing something small or you're designing something that has an impact for more broadly for a broader community, I think I think I think um, I'm aware of the implications of that and um, how to approach it differently and how to consider the Indigenous sensibilities. I, I guess it's, I'm not being very specific and I'm trying to, um, as I'm saying this, I'm trying to think of um, really specific examples that perhaps illustrate that and maybe they'll come to me. Can you just repeat that question for me? Um, so how does your design process differ from how you've been taught or trained? Well, definitely echo what Carol was saying, um, that um, I, I will approach, like the brief is so important to me. Um, I want to understand who I'm designing for and what their needs are. And um, I know that I've done a bit of um, brief writing um, for government on larger projects um, and just consulting with... Um, with groups of people, whether they're traditional owners or other stakeholders, um, asking the, the right questions to get that information out so that the people who will be using that building feel like they own it and they can see their import going into it. Um, that's something that's really important, important and I, I can be an influence in that area. Mm. We'll ask you that question in five years. <laughs> um, if you could universally change one aspect of the way that everyone designs or practices or teaches, what would it be? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess being exposed to some of the you know built environment through uni um, a lot of the indigenous architecture and design really hasn't been addressed um, I've done a few architecture history subjects and it goes into detail about you know Romans and Greek and all the other different architecture methods and design options and indigenous just isn't really there um, so I think that something that I'd like to change is I guess within a university and students, you know, understanding and learning about design, like I think they need to have a better understanding of the area and countries that they're on and how it can differ 
depending wherever you are living and how you need to address those problems. Um, and I think that universities are slowly doing that, um, but there does need to be a bigger emphasis onto it. Um, and I think students are very interested in it. And whenever we've talked about things within tutorials and lectures, it's all positive. So I think that universities and um, yeah, just companies need to be a bit more engaging in how we need to address, you know, design process and how we can look at yeah different countries and how we can adapt to bringing them into that area. Yeah, I guess that's going off what you just said, but also what I was saying earlier about privileging country in the design process. I think um, I'd like to see that as part of a. How amazing if we learnt that in university. Um, you know, in terms of what was it to change? If, if there was one thing I could change. Um, I think, I think uh, just in terms of, uh, I guess, because I'm in the research uh, space and the research methodology. I think there's, there's. I'll, I'll give you an example with, um, I guess, a research project that I did where we it in, involved consultation uh, within uh, Torres Strait Islander community on water infrastructure of all things, and I proposed going back to the community to present them with the report and the findings and the things that they'd given us. Uh, to tell them and to explain to them, thank you, not only thank you for the information, but also where the information was going and what their potential role could be in terms of um, the the process after that. And um, and when I proposed that, I didn't think it was very, you know, uh, radical or different. But I realised that in the un uh, in certain projects within the university that, um, and particularly with the colleagues because they were outside of architecture that I was working with, there were people in the health field and um, environmental scientists and so forth, they found it quite unusual to do that because usually you go to a community, you glean information, you write it in a report and the report then goes to government. Um, but when we went back to the community, it was really interesting process, not only with the um, local Indigenous community, but it was also with the uh, government stakeholders. They were all really surprised in that process as well. And it actually changed a lot of our findings, which would have probably sat as an expert report back to government. And, and I think that's a really important part of the process. So I think there's, there's so many steps and processes along the way that you want to change. And the idea of the, the expert that sits, you know, gleans the information and puts it through an expert lens and then feeds it to up the higher, higher the chain um, is, is, you know, just one, I guess, one example. I think, um, like Danielle, um, the connection to country, country is so important. One project um, was that we, we designed um, wasn't, hasn't been built yet. We're still waiting for state government to kick that one off. But um, it was for a rehabilitation clinic out at Normanton and it was stage two works. 
stage one had been held up because there hadn't been um, engagement done with the local community. So they had a stop works issued and there was a hold up and it got messy and yuck. Um, anyhow, with stage two, we were called in as the, the, as the designers and part of what we brought, what we wanted to do was to um, connect with the traditional owners. Um, and we met them on site and we walked around and the location for where we were going to do, to, to design and build a, um, a training um, space um, had, some, had some issues for the local people in that there was a tree um, that there were, there were stories about that tree, spiritual stories, um, not all good for, for people. Um, and I'm not, I'm not from that country, but I picked up on the, you could say the vibe <laughs> coming from that area. What it meant though was that in designing this building, we, we, had, um, we didn't have outlooks to that tree. So we were very sensitive about when we positioned windows, what they looked out to. And we asked the traditional owners what aspects they saw as important. And we included that in, in how we approached the design. Um, and then we went through a process of just, um, like, once we had had um, gotten that information from the traditional owners and talked about what, what could work, what we could do, we then went back after having a sketch, um, and this was in support with, with the client. Um, HPW was very supportive, we were very fortunate to have a project manager who, who was prepared to work with us. Um, we then validated with the um, TOs that what we were doing was actually what they wanted as well um, because that's really important. You can be talking what seems to be the same language but then, you know, have a different understanding of that conversation. So um, we make sure as part of that process that we just um, have that, that feedback again as, as part of that validation process. It's interesting, isn't it? Just reflecting on what, um, what all of you have said really is that we don't, we don't learn how to consult with clients when we're at uni. None of that really happens until you're in practice. And I remember you said at a conference recently that we're designing spiritual places for people. Mm. And why are we not factoring in those things and learning those things at the very beginning? It comes at this end and it's almost an end thought and it's not actually something that we're taught or it's not normalised into the way that we design, mm. which is a problem. Mm. Mm. Um, sorry, adding in my own two cents. Um, <laughs> um, what are you currently contemplating in your own work? What do you feel you don't yet have the answer to? There's lots of things I don't have the answers to. Um, If anyone else wants to jump in here, <laughs> like gather some more thoughts. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm writing up my final chapters for my PhD, and I have no idea how to end it. And I feel like I'm going to write a conclusion that isn't a conclusion, and you're not supposed to do that. But I think that's the only real way I can write the end of this PhD. But I don't know what that looks like. Do, is it a design, or is it just? me being philosophical or is it me lashing back at everybody who 
whatever, or embracing everybody. I, have, I just, that's a huge question that I can't even fathom, yet I have to write it in the next couple of months. So it's a bit scary, actually. Um, I've, I've recently had to write something for the Venice Biennale uh, submission from Australia for repair. And, um, and there's this, I guess, I think the thing that you're confronted with is that there's this incredible hunger to look to Indigenous people as having the answer for, um, you know, uh, the environmental crisis that's facing everyone in the world and including Australia, and, um, and I looked at a whole range of work. And, um, but also I looked at, you know, um, the romanticism, you know, the romanticising of Indigenous culture that, yes, you know, uh, there was this sort of alignment with, um, you know, natural uh, nature in terms of, uh, you know, and also through ceremony and ritual and a whole range of things. And even there's stories within my family where in environmental problems have been solved um, through, you know, Indigenous ways of um, uh, and connection uh, with the, the greater environment. And, um, and you know, I think the thing that I, it really struck me now that this is a global, uh, this is a global issue, but Indigenous people uh, particularly were very um, centred on a very small aspect of the space, even though there are travel lines, you know, in terms of your country, your country's relationship to, to space, land, um, and, and the things that you did to, um, to take care of that was interconnected within your regional knowledge of the, of, of the world. And, um, and that really Indigenous people are, are equally confined and, and equally troubled by um, some, the enormity of the problems. And so um, I think the thing that we, I guess we need to accept is that, um, that the scale of the issue is, is really not sort of um, an ethnicity-based thing. It's, it's, it's beyond, <laughs> and, and it also is beyond, uh, you know, one country. And, um, and some of the things that are trying to be solved um, through localised action really is going to have a small impact in, in the broader context of it. So, um, so when I looked at cultural sustainability or environmental sustainability and how Indigenous people, because Indigenous beasts are so incredibly different, um, so uh, in some Indigenous people believe that when there are bad events, it's because you haven't actually maintained your culture um, or you haven't actually done the right thing, you know? So, and they're warning symptom, symptoms from the environment that you're not actually taking care of country. So, uh, and it's totally, in a sense, it does align with, um, it, it does align with Western views too, because uh, essentially when, um, something is going, you know, because there are the, the issues with uh, the environment are so incredibly enormous, people are realising that, you know, the little things that you do in terms of recycling, you know, thinking about your footprint and blah, 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 um, all those uh, things do have, have 
um, a small contribution for lessening your 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 impact. So I think the I think I often struggle with um, how um, Indigenous views are often at the end, different ends of the spectrum of Western knowledge and ways and know, knowing and being. I um, it's interesting. What do you have to learn? Um, I I spent a week up on my family island um, called Kiriri, um, in the Torres Strait, also known as Hammond Island. It's not far from Thursday Island, and. Um, the house that I stayed in was built some 80 years ago by my grandfather and prior to that house he'd built another one on the same slab on which that one stands. And it was built from recycled bits and pieces. Um, when I walked around that site, these are things that I learned that I didn't even know about my family. Um, the block um, fits into, um, like there's a... There's a a V-shaped hill that separates it from the mission and from the point um, where it sits. And it might be about 4,000 square metres to give you an idea of size. When I walked around that block, there were evidence of um, stone gardens that had been built beneath a, a spring, a natural spring. So back in the day when my mum was growing up, a little girl, um, they would, during the dry season, they would get water for their gardens um, from the spring. And the design and thought that had gone into the lad of that garden from my grandfather, I thought was just incredible, the way he worked that land to feed his family and then grow enough plants to sell and, and buy tea and bits and pieces. They worked really hard and they lived off, off that country. There's some things that I've learned about my family <laughs> and, and how they, um, they were innovators during, of that time, um, which is, yeah, just amazing. I'm, I'm learning so much. I learn that every community that I do engagement work with they're so different. I was fortunate enough to do some work with um, or to work for Department of Housing in the remote housing um, service, which meant that I went out to communities like Arakoon, um, um, Yarrabah, which is not far from Cairns, but it could be as far as Arakoon for <laughs> their access to services that they have. Um, and what I noticed um, was that in Arakoon, the way that the Aboriginal people there, and there's four different WIC um, clans kind of in that town. They're divided into kind of streets, or streets, top end, bottom end, um, to separate warring clans. Um, what I noticed was how people interacted with their dwelling um, to maintain an, a line of sight to who was approaching the house. Um, and people would choose to sit out, out the front under the shade of the tree or on the veranda and to keep a line of sight. And it's about, I, I guess, being prepared for a sudden visit from someone who you don't want to visit from. And that's very different to a community like Wudja Wudja where they're not like that. They don't have that, um, that same need to be defensive. Um, 
so every community is different. And whenever I, I, well, Andrew and I go in to do any work with the community, we go in with um, an openness to learn from, from the people. Um, and we're always learning. Um, what do you feel you don't yet have the answer to or what are you currently contemplating? Oh. <laughs> um, well, I guess I don't have a lot of answers to many questions at the moment, but I guess it's quite exciting to see where things are going. Um, we've just said how things are increasing with Indigenous designers and um, researchers and obviously ever, like you guys here tonight. So it's pretty exciting to see the opportunities and um, I guess what I can potentially do in the future. And um, yeah, like you said, it's really important to engage with all the different communities and how there's so many differences. And I think um, learning about that can really help with what I'm wanting to do in my design process and yeah, in the future. Um, on that, in terms of design process, do you feel that you have a universal set of protocols that you apply to every job or practice or um, project that you go into, or do you feel that you, you change the protocols depending on where you're going? Um, with, with Andrew and myself, um, it's really great that you know, male, female, we find that um, for a lot of communities that we've gone into, there's a real need to separate a men's conversation from the women's conversation. Um, so we're, we're very open to that. The other, I guess, other protocols, Indigenous people are so respectful of um, traditional owners and um, in to start a conversation um, with, with Indigenous people on a project, what comes back to us repeatedly is, have you spoken to the traditional owner group, blah, 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 whatever their name is. It's really important that we do that. So that's a priority. And then it's, I guess, as far as protocols go, um, you, you do need to investigate who are the key people to talk with and that can be an unfolding process and sometimes the key people to speak with are not the loud ones um, with the microphone or with the loud voice speaking you know for everybody um, so something we do is have a box so that um, people can go and put in a note about what what matters to them and then we sift through that um, and allow discussion to come from those comments as well I might think of some more things, but anyone else? <laughs> nice move, Danielle. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, can you... Uh, uh, do you feel there are any the universal protocols you apply to every project you go into, or are they always different? Uh, I think... I think uh, very similar to what uh, Francois said, uh, just in terms of how you uh, approach a community, talking to traditional owners. Um, it really depends on the project, um, but I've worked in um, uh, Northern Territory, 
Queensland, New South Wales, WA, and um, you know, you each you start each project depending on even if it's a research project with talking to the appropriate people. Um, I think I think the other thing is that uh, just in terms of um, there, are, each community has its own uh, dynamics. Uh, social, political, cultural, <laughs> um, and so you have to navigate those as well. And uh, it's 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 sometimes uh, learning to to de know and expect that each community you'll have processes that you have to uh, negotiate that sometimes get bogged down in localized politics that sometimes sits very much outside your project, but also knowing that that comes with the terrain, even if you're doing um, research. Uh, so, and then also engaging Indigenous people and upskilling, which I think is a thing that we do in very, very little ways in terms of, um, so Indigenous people, may not have the research writing skills um, on a project, but they they will be able to engage and help you negotiate some of the community politics as well as engaging. Um, yeah, so understanding that uh, sometimes, you know, that as a, you, you really take off your external, you know, outsider expert uh, jacket and you really go from a process of wanting to learn and work together and also um, really engage fully uh, with a project and sometimes being very careful about externally driven agendas and 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 being prepared to switch those with governments because go governments sometimes have external agendas uh, with particular building programs it's like you know let's build a car um, uh, let's build a women's centre in X place and then you go to that community and they say, well, actually, we didn't really want a women's centre. We just wanted somewhere to store our swags while we, when we, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of knowing that sometimes a lot of these agendas in, in some communities, even research, a lot of research-driven uh, uh, genders from government, um, can be switched so that you can actually address the community needs from the community perspective and not sort of sticking to your brief and being willing to um, challenge it, I guess. It's all right, I do have something to say. I was just being sneaky. Um, I, I don't think there's protocols that you can use for every community, but there are some principles that we all hold dear, like, you know, respecting, being respectful of traditional learners, respecting country, respecting elders. And that's, I think um, they all manifest in different ways. And that, it, but you can understand that respect's really important. Um, and that's, I guess that, um, that's the same with working through research. There's no, when I'm going to meet with somebody, there's no one way to have a yarn with them. And I, sometimes it's just, can I ask you a question? Is the is the first question, and then it goes from there. But and each every person has a different way of um, of talking and yarning and sharing, and just respecting that. Coming back to respect is one of the important parts of you know the process. Just something that came to mind was with protocols. Um, y you know, going to your land councils and finding out who the traditional owners are, whether there's contested um, land, so that 
and you know you can ask for for help and advice in navigating your way through for the project that you're doing. There's also um, groups, traditional owner groups, who are really established and um, with uh, a set of protocols to follow. So um, an example is the Kurrareg peoples up in the Straits. They have a land trust group, but they also have an elders group. Um, and uh, I think there's, a, there's another group, but it, regardless, those two groups have come together to form, um, with the help of an administrator, a sequence of protocols so that when government or, in the instance, there's a gold mine wanting to develop on Horn Island, um, need to talk to the, the Kurrig people, they approach it in the right way and they're not just going to the elders and getting someone's okay, but there's actually a process to go through that to ensure that there's a group decision made on that. Um, and I know there are many other Indigenous organisations with um, protocols that are established and as designers, it's our role to inquire about that and find out when we're designing for, for communities like that. What have you learnt by mistake? Getting two contesting um, Indigenous traditional owners in the same room. That, that's a good one. I've only done that once. Um, yeah. You really need your peace skills out there for that. I guess, like, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess, yeah, all my learning comes from my mistakes. Like, I think it's the best way I learn and you can only really improve from there. So, yeah. Oh, she stole my answer. Um, I think um, very recently I learned how to say no in a very nice way through making really bad mistakes. Um, yeah, I think, I think it, uh, the number of instances are within Indigenous organisations and perhaps not in a design context, but also uh, in dealing with government... Um, and particularly, I, I was involved in uh, the development of the Musgrave Park Cultural Centre and liaising with the community. And um, the big mistake, obviously, because there's no Musgrave Park Cultural <laughs> Centre. Um, but also, I think the thing that I learnt through that process was that the government had its agenda, the community had its agenda, and they were very, very far apart. And um, the mistake was to first of all follow the government approach and criteria uh, to the development of the project. And then um, when I had to, I had the role of trying to translate that for the Indigenous community to find that their objectives were on a totally different page. And so being willing to go back to government but um, to find ways that you can negotiate that process on behalf of the community, particularly when those goals are, are very far apart. And sometimes uh, the mistake was 
you know, allowing that process and thinking that I had to conform to it, but then realising I had a lot of strategic power to actually negotiate both of those. So the mistake, yeah, uh, learning from that. Um, how do you satisfy your creativity outside of your profession or your studies? What do you do for fun? Well, I asked that question about four years ago and, um, and that's how I started just doing surface pattern art and building, doing more of my art because it's a large part of who I am and it's, um, so I'm doing it. I'm doing what I, what I love to do and I'm, you know, working on interiors as well and there's this space that I'm starting to fit into up in Cairns and Cairns is like, the deep north, I kind of think of it as. We've got a way to go yet. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this space that I'm fitting into of doing curatorial work and um, um, just that advi advisement on incorporating artworks into projects. So I, I think incorporating artworks into projects that can be superficial. It all depends on your methodology of your approach um, to the project you're working on. Um, but I, I feel really fortunate that I'm in this, this space that's transforming to fit my creativity. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I guess I have probably a different idea of hobbies and I guess um, besides uni and work, it's just kind of, relaxing and hanging out with friends while I can until I get into yeah full-time work and into the big league I guess <laughs> do that while you can <laughs> um I'm a crafter have always been a crafter and as of pretty much all the women in our family and um so that's knitting and crochet and that sort of thing in winter and in summer weaving and the weaving is a recent reclamation in our family and it's a really important one and um, really important for us culturally and also just as a way of understanding how our bodies do things, how we move around the, the country in the city, country in the city, because pretty much all of us, other than my sister, live in, live in urban spaces. So this is where we collect our materials and... So there's a lot of walking that I do as part of that creative process and it's a really important part. Walking's really important. Walking country to know country, to know all of the where you go to get your Lamandra, where do you go to get your Gaimea and what does it look like at different times of the year and when do you collect it, even though there's cars racing past you and, you know. So, yeah, that's... There's heaps of other stuff. <laughs> um... This, that question highlights a very sad aspect of my life. I guess um, um, in terms of opportunity to be creative, I think the, the most instantaneous thing that I do is photography. Um, and, and so taking uh, photographs uh, and it's, what's really nice about that is that those photographs are not critiqued by any... <laughs> 
anybody um, and and it's just sheer experimental you know so it's not yeah so taking photographs wherever I go and um, and I think that's my only creative outlet other than stolen moments that you have for um, you know learning to re-engage uh, and draw just for the the sheer enjoyment of, of drawing and putting um, pen on paper. Um, I have one final question for you before we might open up to anybody sitting around who would like to ask a question. Um, and that is how can we encourage more young Indigenous women to study built environment professions? Uh, that's an incredibly good question because it's something, as you know, that uh, we've contemplated uh, an incredibly long period of time. And um, at UQ, what we do do is that we have um, students, uh, Murray students and uh, Torres Strait Islander students that come to the university. And we decided that starting at high school was too late. Starting at primary school was a really important time for engagement. And there's been different approaches, which I think some of... Um, have had massive failures, um, but uh, some of them have been, yes, studying uh, with children in year three. Um, I mean, I'd like to start in, in, in prep, <laughs> um, but, but when we do, um, so we get, we've had students come back continually um, through the program, some that we've actually seen in a number of years. Um, but a, a lot of them, uh, because it's not in, you know, I guess it's the same for, for everyone. If architecture, it, it's something ubiquitous that we experience, um, but in terms of the making of architecture is not something necessarily um, that everyone gets to experience. And so um, I would like to, I'd like to see sort of general pro programs in schools that are not just specifically Indigenous you know, for Indigenous students, it's for all in students, um, because I don't think we need to sort of corral Indigenous students into a corner and say, let's have some, you know, making and architectural experiences. I think it's it's something that all children uh, all children need, um, and so. When we do get students at UQ, we really, really try and track them and hang on to them and um, engage with them. And I think that the very, very few students that we have had, we've retained. And um, and I think that's, an, you know, for any institution, that's a really Im important thing uh, to do. But I, I think, yes, definitely starting at a very, very young age and not waiting until students are thinking about what, am I, what is my sort of potential university course going to be. Yeah, the, I mean, there's the question of curricula, of course, of um, making sure that it's not too Eurocentric and male-centric. Um, so seeing people like us is really important to see not only women but also non-European people seen in, in our curricula. When I came through, that wasn't the case. So I'm hoping that that's changed in the few years. Uh, I think also we need to see people like this in more forums because there needs to be people that look like us doing this, you know, that, say, that, 
that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women going, standing up and saying, uh, being able to stand up and, and be an example as well for young women so that they can see themselves getting there too. Yeah, I agree with the early education. I think that's really important. I also agree with having really good role models. Um, and I think, yeah, similar to what you're saying, like having spaces where people can openly and confidently speak um, and not be judged um, based on, you know, what their beliefs are and having, you know, constructive criticism is really important. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's just, it's only one way up from here. I think um, there's a lot more emphasis on women in the built environment and I know that with, you know, there's so many opportunities um, with jobs and scholarships and for women being in, you know, STEM and, you know, architecture and engineering and mining. There's so many more opportunities than I think there was, you know, not even five years ago. Like, it's just, there's, there's a boom at the moment. So I think it's really positive. I echo what these ladies are saying. Um, I'll just add something else um, as to what, what Andrew and I do as a small practice um, for a brief that we're writing for a... Um, expansion to accommodation up in the Torres Strait for high school students. Um, we were fortunate enough, because we said we wanted to do this, <laughs> um, we, we worked with year 11 and 12 um, girls, because the girls were the well-behaved ones. Um, anyhow, then these were kids from the outer islands um, of the Torres Strait. And we only had them for an hour and it was at the end of uh, first term. Um, it was the night before they went home to their islands, which I'm so excited about. And we had about 11 of these girls come and um, to this workshop that, that we had with them. And it was simple. We wanted their feedback on how we lay out a room, a shared room and a single room. And um, I mean, we just worked with basic shapes, but we said they could change that shape if they wanted to, but just to start off and we had it to scale at like one is to 20 um, plans and cut out like bits of furniture, but we said you can change that too. And we allowed those students just to shuffle things around on paper. And there were girls who hadn't heard about architecture or, or interior design um, and I guess because I was leading that workshop my push was more on interiors and I thought I'm just going to be spe specific because they're tired and you know just keep their focus on something kind of smaller and um, just what they come up with was amazing and then I asked them to tell me why they put things where they did and you know had the responses off oh, to shame and girls were just like oh and I said, no, don't be shame. you know, just tell me, tell me, why did you put your bed there? And so, um, although I started to talk broken as well, because then they relaxed more. Um, and they explained why they had their bed far away from the window and why they had all these other things going on. Some of them did these elaborate drawings of um, joinery details of what they would exactly like. 
<laughs> which is fantastic. Um, and where they wanted balconies and all these things. I was like, yeah, I can't see getting a balcony off your room. But it was just great for them just to go for it and um, positioning lighting and um, it was just wonderful. So I think that's, that's just a small thing that as a practice you can do. Um, just giving that opportunity and they see um, who I am, who my family is and there's a connection that you can do that. Um, I'd love to thank you ladies for coming to Melbourne and having yarn. I had a wonderful time. I think what, everything that everyone shared has been really generous and really positive. Um, and if anybody in the audience would like to ask a question, put your hand up. Um, or do you guys have any questions for each other? <laughs> put you on the spot. Question up the back. Um, this is uh, probably an ignorant question, but uh, it just earlier on in the discussion there was some talk about um, indigenous architecture or indigenous buildings. When we talk about that, does it mean it's designed by an indigenous architect, or what m makes it an indigenous building? Um, I have a very expansive definition of Indigenous <laughs> architecture. Um, so um, I think if Indigenous, if Indigenous people are involved as stakeholders in the consultation process, so I don't think um, Indigenous buildings or Indigenous architecture are just buildings specific purpose built for Indigenous people. Um, so I, I probably have an incredibly broad definition which Anything that includes um, Indigenous stakeholders in the design consultation process where it's attempting to be responsive to uh, Indigenous cultural identity uh, in landscape, built form, um, in, in public spaces, in urban spaces where there's murals or, or so forth. Um, I see those as Indigenous attempts, of, uh, uh, attempts to have um, indigenous placemaking. Um, I do think a lot of that is driven through ideas of rep reparation and reconciliation and inclusivity, and um, and there. Um, but um, so, for an indigenous medical centre, um, say, in you know in Melbourne. Uh, when it was built, had an Indigenous flag. Uh, it had predominantly Indigenous clientele, and it was probably overlooked from the architectural fraternity as an, an Indigenous building or Indigenous space. But it was highly politicised, I think, in terms of having um, an Indigenous flag, which is a, a political symbol, social, political, cultural uh, symbol. And I would call that an Indigenous building too. So, um, yeah. So I guess I have. The, the broadest um, um, idea. And I often see um, even buildings that aren't, you know, uh, there's been, I'm going to raise it, there's been a lot of controversy in Melbourne about a particular building with a face <laughs> um, and who or what was consulted uh, or whom. And I see that has, uh, that building has a lot of um, symbolic reconciliation value. 
Um, and I do believe that there are, you know, um, even though every Indigenous um, clan group of Melbourne wasn't consulted in that building, um, that there were Indigenous stakeholders and those Indigenous stakeholders see that building as having a series of messaging about ownership of country and so forth. And so even though the architectural fraternity hates it <laughs> for it, um, for the fact that it isn't, um, you know, because it's so literal, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, and I think the discussion around that particular building too has been driven, uh, it's shown an interesting um, debate and dynamics which are really driven by, um, uh, you know, concerns that are really outside what was the the stakeholder, Indigenous stakeholder, architect in, in involvement. And I think it does say a very important thing um, symbolically, uh, which Indigenous people women are talking about, which is, you know, we had a discussion here about country, you know, people are talking about country. And uh, the interesting thing is that Indigenous people are having multiple readings of buildings and those are changing over a period of time. And a lot of Indigenous people, when they're being consulted to give a name for a building or to put a... Um, to sit down with the architects and the architects are sort of using black cockatoo with, um, you know, in, in, in some examples. Indigenous people are saying, well, actually, so even though that building is an administration building in a university, which no Indigenous people are using, we're actually using that to, treat, to teach people who come on our country that we are the TOs. So I think there's, there's multiple ways of, of looking at a building and the way that the architectural fraternity looks specifically at a building in terms of its aesthetic or its, its form making and its, its brief response um, that Indigenous people are, ha are using buildings in, in different ways and having um, multiple readings. So, uh, so that's why I have an expansive idea about that. Thank you. It's a really good question and I think as Indigenous designers um, there are many viewpoints on that one. Um, for Andrew and I we, we talk about this and we're friends with some really talented um, architects um, who are not Indigenous but they work collaborative, collaboratively um, with, with Indigenous clients and produce beautiful responsive design. Um, so in short, you could elaborate on this hugely, but you, you don't have to be an Indigenous designer to do Indigenous architecture. Mm. That's, that's interesting. My view. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, can I ask another question quickly? <laughs> um, it's uh, uh, a thought that came up while you guys were talking because I... I um, know of a building in Melbourne that was um, the naming of the building was put out to community consultation. They basically put a vote out and said, you know, tell us what you think this building should be named. And the the decision was to name it after a, a um, local moiety. Um, but that decision came from the broader community and not necessarily from the traditional custodians. Um, and I don't think that there was consultation with the traditional custodians as to whether or not 
that was all right. Um, I think it's just a really interesting uh, situation what, um, that came about that this building ended up with being named after this moiety by the broader community and not necessarily by the traditional owners or the traditional custodians. Mm. Not really a question, just a... <laughs> I've got, I can comment a bit about that. Yeah. I'm, uh, in the work I'm doing with Government Architect, we're looking at naming. Um, and as a generalisation... Um, this is all generalisations, I'm mm. afraid. But we tend to name things traditionally um, by the country that was there. Always there still, um, and what what's what's special about that particular piece of country, and then Europeans tend to name after people, yeah, and um, so Sydney and Brisbane is Melbourne named after a person, yeah, and then we're still doing it though, like Barangaroo is named after a woman, so to me that's a colonised mm. version of a name. Well, and it wasn't properly, this is in Sydney, of course, it wasn't properly consulted and there's a lot of Aboriginal people who feel very uncomfortable about that name being used. Um, same with Maroubra, um, named after a, a revered um, elder. But, and, of course, we want to revere our elders and have those... Um, that's important for us as a community, but it, it's not how we've traditionally named. And so that, that it's almost like a continua continuation of the the colonising process of sh changing names to match people. Yeah. I don't know about this, this building, but um, I wonder if it's a similar situation to the Barangaroo situation, um, where the name perhaps could already... Maybe the place already had a name as well yeah. that wasn't even considered into the process. We you know, you find a lot of things have happened through colonisation with naming is particularly... Um, key like okay they kept some names but then they're often in the wrong place you know the 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 actual place that it should have been named after is 15 kilometers that way and so what does that mean and I think it means that um they've kept the name which is in some way being respectful but then they've moved it and so it's actually disrespectful and the names we only know what's important about a name because somebody tells us that that's what that name means and so when you know the, na the importance of a name, it's because of a cultural memory or a cultural story that's come through the community for a long time that's kept that name going as well. And so as soon as you start changing names or moving them, then that's, ch that's a disrespectful process of a name that's sort of just been handed, o handed on. Anyway, could go on about names. Can I say something quite controversial? Um, <laughs> Uh, where I'm from is, uh, so we're talking about naming and um, it's interesting uh, where I'm from, my family are in Herberton, which is a very, very small town, um, and there's a creek called Nigger Creek. Um, and the council approached my family to ask them to change it to a traditional name. And um, there was a big discussion in the family about, okay, we didn't, obviously, it's called Nigger Creek, um, and it was because that was a camp of where the um, native police camped as a part of the sort of colonisation onslaught and murder of, um, you know, a lot of Indigenous people. They actually used that as a, 
a site for camping and that involved um, Indigenous trackers and so forth. It was called Nigger Creek Creek and it's still Nigger Creek to this day. And so my auntie as a senior person in the community was asked, can we change it to an Aboriginal name because the council wants to write over this history. So there was a big discussion in the community about, well, hold it, if we actually change it to a traditional name, are we actually writing over the fact that there was this history in Australia and therefore we're contributing to this sort of whitewashing? Um, and, and so it becomes, a, it becomes something that Indigenous people um, are really considering and it's not a very quick decision that people are making. So in the end, because the, the, the name was going to be quite something innocuous, it was to do with the place, it was to do with... <laughs> um, and so to this day that, that name still remains and it becomes a part of the story um, that, uh, you know, my family and the people who are from that area who can tell uh, the story uh, so it isn't whitewashed over. So I think there's, there's, there's really multiple readings and there's multiple perspectives. Um, and I think Indigenous people are very careful about um, reparations and, and trying to sort of undo some of the historical markers that are, that are actually memorialising um, uh, a process and a way of thinking and being um, in terms of the racial divisions that used, you know, that occurred in Australia. Yeah, thank I, you. I, th I agree. I think um, the storytelling in naming is really important, and we that if it's part of the truth telling as well of what's actually happened. And if we take those names away, what happens? But it's part of the question, the genuine question, as well. I have a question that is. Are the entrepreneurial skills of the Aboriginal people different from non-Aboriginals or is it similar? How would you differentiate the entrepreneurial skills in business, women in business? Oh, entrepreneurial. It is, you know, the yeah. soft skills, the financial skills and soft skills in the sense, you know, innovation, creative, we talked about creativity. Yeah. But then, you know, other soft skills like, you know, perseverance. Maybe, yeah. Um, I mean, I've had to learn all of those, the, the usual entrepreneurial skills as well, because otherwise you don't have a business for very long um, in this way of doing business. <laughs> but also I've had to um, learn how to work in, or not even learn, but uncover how to work in my own communities, which perhaps isn't a skill that um, all non-Indigenous entrepreneurs have had, ever had to have, but I don't know. But I've had to certainly be able to work with extended family and be able to work with kin and networks that are developed through um, extended family and extended um, yeah, social networks as well, and do that in a way that's, that I'm respecting those relationships at the same time as still doing the job. I, I've got several answers for that. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess um, in terms of, I've worked for a really lot of very savvy Indigenous organisations that have had um, very strong Indigenous leadership, I have had an Indigenous board, predominantly an Indigenous staff and they've 
started off in the welfare space but actually being able to sort of innovate and develop little micro um, enterprises which really fit and match Indigenous needs and communities because um, non-Indigenous people are working in a, in a different space. So uh, some of the businesses that have been driven by Indigenous organisations, this particular Indigenous organisation that I worked for in Central Australia, were actually things that the non-Indigenous community were totally unaware of, that there was this capacity to sort of build and grow businesses. But also what happened in what always happens with indigenous businesses is that they have a high range and a high percentage of indigenous employment, which is um, and so that's a part of their model as well. And they're not necessarily profit driven to major extreme. It's about indigenous employment and engagement. So there is a different approach in different contexts, and yet um, there's another Indigenous organisation which started off as a training organisation, um, you know, in Camawil, which is 150 kilometres northwest of um, Mount Isa. And it started off as a training organisation for um, long term unemployed Indigenous people, men and women, um, in, the build, you know, in the construction industry. It's now a $20 million turnover business because, once again, it's an Indigenous person who's working in an incredibly remote part of Australia and no one's even seeing any business opportunity in Camerwheel. Most people haven't heard of Camerwheel. Um, but that organisation, once again, has um, major Indigenous employment, there's micro-businesses, they're actually learning and going to communities and growing businesses and capacities. They do, I think Indigenous people are doing business differently and that has a flow on to the built environment as well and how the building, how the, those organisations are procuring buildings and controlling buildings and they want to maximise Indigenous employment. So a lot of Indigenous people are trying to maximise um, you know, economic engagement and growing enterprises in areas where um, governments are sort of saying those communities are sort of basket cases. So I think Indigenous people have an entirely different perspective and it's changing, um, it's a, it's changing uh, the future of a lot of those communities. So, that, so that's, yeah. Um, if, is there any one more question? Yep. Hi. Um, I uh, recently read an article which used this term Aboriginal kitsch and it was kind of like a similar concept to pinkwashing or greenwashing where pretty much you kind of had a shallow surface level of Indigenous acknowledgement in some kind of way in your design aesthetic but it didn't go any deeper. It was just kind of there to say kind of like, look, we did it. And I just wondered about your own experiences with encountering it or trying to counter it and how you kind of address people who seem to have the right idea or are trying to look like they have the right idea in terms of Indigenous acknowledgement within design. Yeah. Carol, you can probably think of quite a few. Hey, I think of um, there's a building in the North, I think it's in the Northern Territory, the big crocodile um, hotel. That's a classic example of quiche. 
Is that the word? Kitch? Kitch. I like quiche. I like eating quiche. <laughs> My kids would say, you're doing that mum thing. <laughs> um, it, what, what that building also did was that for people whose totem was crocodile, they, their interaction with that building changed. Like, you know, they couldn't go on it. I think that was the case. They couldn't go into it. You might know more about it, Carol. Um, I, I can't stand um, kitsch. Uh, and today there are so many great designers out there who understand what responsive design is. We should be going beyond the superficial. Um, they're, they're designing for any culture, whether it's Indigenous or any other culture, we should be going beyond the superficial, beyond the ego. That's just my own point of view. Um, mm. uh, could you uh, could it, could you just elaborate a little bit more? Because oh, sorry, <laughs> the mic's gone away. Um, just so that we can have a. I just wanted to because you know the uh, kitsch Ab Aboriginal kitsch has been applied to sort of you know those um, uh, faces you know that were sort of blackened out and they were done for the tourist market. There was a whole range of things. There's boomerangs. Yeah. There's there's a whole sort of mass production of things that are not done by Indigenous people um, that have um, sort of a marketability. Uh, and then there's there's also now a collection of people who, collectors who actually collect Aboriginal kitsch art, uh, which was sort of things that were done in the 50s and the, to the 70s and, you know, so uh, yeah. are you thinking about it in terms of architecture or you, um, um, yeah. well, just as a general term? This, this article um, kind of had, I guess, almost like reused the term and it was, it was more aligned I didn't, I guess they were kind of using it instead of, I guess you'd say indigenous washing or something, um, where somewhere you're, they were using kind of Aboriginal motifs or um, words or kind of, yeah, just very shallow approaches to, but like the building you mentioned in Melbourne that shall not be, <laughs> um, that, was, that was one of the examples, um, interestingly, that they used. They're saying that this was just a surface level approach that wasn't deep enough, which obviously is arguable, yeah. but um, that a lot of institutions now will have, um, have something that kind of acknowledges Indigenous people, which is great, or uses a design element without actually carrying that on in their practice or their approach, or these buildings aren't actually designed for the people they're supposedly acknowledging. Mm. And kind of, it makes them look good, and it makes them look like they're acknowledging these issues or making kind of steps forward, but nothing's really being done, I guess. Or I, if that's arguable, but kind of, yeah. Uh, I think it is definitely arguable in terms of uh, that particular building, because um, to apply the concept of kitsch, I think, it, I think that building was a lot about anxieties that were outside what the building was, and it was anxieties about sort of um, urban spaces and participation in, in in design and what design should be and what buildings should be um, um, and and you know I think kitsch is a very easy label to put on something and I think in the analysis that you have to actually really um, not use something as just a throwaway term because it becomes um, but 
you know, it becomes a, a sort of a, an easy deferral point to sort of dismiss and conflate something that you don't want to really understand or in, or engage with. So, um, but on, in the other, some of the other examples that uh, we've discussed in terms of, um, you know, putting, um, you know, if Indigenous people are engaged in the, in the process, sometimes Indigenous people um, too, particularly we found this in, in urban art, uh, when Indigenous people were asked to, to sort of paint murals in, in hospital buildings and foyers to give um, a sense of, um, you know, that the institution was responsive to its Indigenous clientele. And a lot of Indigenous people reached back to a design and a set of motives that really were, were from somewhere else because... Um, in an urban context, not everybody is working from, you know, uh, trained art institute um, perspective. But you have um, so uh, uh, some Indigenous people see that uh, non-Indigenous people see that as very kitsch, but Indigenous people see that as very empowering. <laughs> so it's like you know, Indigenous people are having multiple readings, and then. Uh, indigenous people who are perhaps trained in institutions um, on on what the Western aesthetic and the ideals of the Western aesthetic are having a different reading entirely. So I think there's a diverse response uh, from Indigenous people and there's also multiple readings. And what I found as an Indigenous person, and this is what I found in a lot of the research that I do, is that there's this dichotomised approach that therefore if the Western reading of something is disempowering, then Indigenous people must also have that view. But actually Indigenous people see... Um, power in what people um, see as disempowering. So I think unless you are start including Indigenous people in that voice and understand why they find that empowering and what their reading of it is, then we, we will still have this sort of um, dichotomous approach of, you know, black-white, um, you know, um, empowering, disempowering, um, which... I don't think really shows the the nuances and the and the complexity of the mul you know multiple readings of a of an action or a, a piece of architecture. I um, somebody asked me the other day, what do you think of those Aboriginal people who um, you know play didgeridoo and dance and stuff in Circular Quay? And I said, actually, uh, good on them. They're, they're expressing their culture. They're making some money in a way that works for them. And they said, but don't you think they're selling out? And I said, um, not as much as people who work in Western institutions who have adapted to a Western way of working of selling out. So, I don't know. I mean, it's everyone's going to work in their own way, but actually, good on them for doing their thing. Um, just to add, I guess, um, I was recently, well, not recently, quite a while ago, but given the opportunity to work on a project for the, que the Queen, Vic um, Queen Vic Market project, the new community hub, um, little did I know it was because the council wanted an Indigenous um, intern on it, and that was one of the only reasons that I was really given it. Um, 
and I was, I think, maybe accidentally included in an email thread saying that I um, was supposed to be given an internship role for being Indigenous and not really for the skill of what I had. Um, so I think addressing it is one of the main, um, I guess, responses that should be given and that the community and the, you know, um, social needs to, yeah, address the fact and, I guess, not allow that to happen or to engage with it and be like, why is this design there or what is the background of it and actually give an understanding. Um, and, yeah, those opportunities and things were great for, I guess, a development for me, but I addressed that and they were like, wow, we didn't even think of that. That's mm. a horrible thing and we apologise. But I think, yeah, in terms of Indigenous catch or whatever it was, <laughs> I think people are ignorant towards it and they think, oh, yeah, I'm doing a really good thing and I'm including Indigenous people and whatnot and kind of just... It's a tick on their box, really, instead of actually engaging and making it appropriate to this like project. So I think people should yeah engage more and contribute and you know talk with the traditional owners and yeah i think that's the main way to fixing that problem i guess it ends up being a question of what's the motivation if you can answer that then you can you can decide whether or not it's an appropriate decision that's been made. Um, I think we'll wrap up there. Thank you everyone for coming and thank you to these lovely ladies for coming from everywhere across Australia to speak tonight. Um, I think everyone's appreciated it. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.